welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. Welcome back to season two of the No Walls podcast. We've been away for a few months. We did say we were going to go away for the summer. And Tofik, it was it was pretty uneventful, man. All we had was, you know, a, a leadership contest, the, the pound crash to record low levels. We had our Rwanda substantive hearing. We've now got a new Home Secretary talking about how she dreams of deporting people. Um, there's never a dull day with this government. How's your how's your little break from the podcast been? Yeah, busy busy summer, right? I mean, we lost we lost our our opponent in the Rwanda proceedings midway through the hearing, right? The Home Secretary went while we were still uh, in court, which was uh, an unusual thing, but. Um, Lost, lost our opponent and and lost our monarch during the hearing. It was a it was a very strange five days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was a, it was very eventful, and um, we are now waiting for a judgment, aren't we? <clears throat> With a new Home Secretary dreaming of uh, removals to Rwanda, we saw in the news a lawyer, no less, right? Yeah, I mean, whatever your political affiliations, the fact that a, a senior member of the government can just talk about human beings in that way you know like to 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 just just to say it in such a crass term like she dreams of the first flight taking off being in the the papers the front pages um with 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 the images of this plane i don't know it's uh, this there seems to be something more sinister about this home secretary and i didn't think we could say that given that our previous one and the topic of today Priti Patel's legacy is, you know, we thought the possibly the worst Home Secretary we've ever known. Yeah, no doubt we'll we'll get on to Brahman and what we think her tenure is going to be like. But as Tofik indicated, today's episode, well, we thought it would only be it would only be fitting for for us to dedicate an episode to our opponent in many cases and and the last Home Secretary, Priti Patel, because we've all been quite vocal about her and. Um, not not necessarily saying that this is our opinion, because of course, you know, we're, we're lawyers, we're meant to be as impartial as possible. But some, some have labelled her the worst Home Secretary of all time. Uh, and we thought, we, we thought we'd deal with, let's, we'll try and keep it legal, as legal as we can. We thought we'd deal with litigation that we thought was, was just so, so inhumane and so needless and so entirely avoidable. That, that we had conduct of. There, there's a lot that you could say about Priti Patel's legacy, but we want to deal with the stuff that we know about and we've worked on. So we're going we're gonna to delve into a handful of cases that we've dealt with, where, some of which haven't concluded, of course, and just and just give you our thoughts on those. That intro of Sheroy should have been the intro for every radio and TV interview we've seen Priti Patel come on when journalists have failed to ask her questions about how brutal and horrific her policies have been so you should try and be a radio or news host in your next career i think uh, come on man i'm already on AFTV. i'm on youtube i'm a full-time lawyer what, i mean how much time do you think i have man how much time do you think do you know how difficult it is just to fit this podcast in in amongst everything else now you want me to do radio wasn't pretty patel isn't she an arsenal supporter I think that's the, maybe yeah, but we, we now, but we didn't. We just we disowned her, man. We disowned her. She she tweeted it, and quite literally, our whole fan base said, "We don't want you to go support her." <laughs> so, <laughs> is what it is, man. You can't you can't control it all. I mean, her, her overarching legacy, obviously for me anyway, is is the the Nationality and Borders Act and and all of the stuff that comes with it. But as a result of the sentiment throughout that act, we we've been involved in 
in litigation that deals with asylum accommodation, deportation, a number of things. Tafik, I don't know what you want to start with. Um, I mean, we've been, Rwanda has been front and centre, but I think it might make sense to deal with this in chronological order in terms of one of the earlier cases that we worked on in her tenure. Why don't you Why don't you deal with the Windrush compensation scheme? Because Windrush is sort of why she became Home Secretary, right? We had Rudd and Rudd had to walk because of Windrush. Um, Patel, took, Patel took control over that and, and was meant to steer the compensation scheme. Why don't you delve into that? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's hard to think that Patel was only Home Secretary for three years. Like three decades, man. I've got grey hair now. <laughs> In that, that her, her her legacy is pretty frightening, I and mean, we focus on the Windrush stuff. She came in with a real big kind of as as we got used to these headlines, where she sort of was very compassionate. She was sounding, she was very apologetic in relation to Windrush, um, and then there was this you know big announcement about how they would tackle the various injustices of the Windrush scandal and how she would deal with it, especially and specifically in relation to the compensation scheme. And for a good couple of years, it was quite clear that she was doing absolutely nothing for them. Um, there were massive delays in how the compens- compensation scheme was put forward. So many people who who qualified were just waiting. They didn't hear anything or they had really dubious refusals. And this was a stark contrast to what she was saying publicly about how she cares about these Windrush individuals. Um, I think within the first two years of her her being in office, I think only 5% of the victims in four years had, had been compensated. And she failed to deal with that and failed to grasp that. And and it, and, and I think it was one of the first examples of what we now know to be just factually the position which is she would say a lot for headlines she would say a lot to either rally her base and or to delay or hide her incompetence or inability to actually get a grip on on these difficult issues and still we have clients who are waiting who are unable to actually benefit from this so-called compensation scheme. And I think that's quite an important highlight of her legacy. It's mad. I know I said I was going to keep it legal, but I I can't keep it purely legal because there's such a massive human element to this. Just think think about this for a second, man. You are a family member. You've you've been in a country for God knows how long. You see it as your home. The, The government themselves say they don't really know how many people were unlawfully removed or deported. They haven't got a grasp of how many people this even affects. So, I mean, that 5% you're talking about is probably just 5% of people that have applied for compensation, right? It's not 5% of all victims because they just don't have a number. Like, do you remember, you remember on Channel 4, it was, go- it was going around on Twitter. This is uh, before Mr. Quarteng was our chancellor. He was, he was on Channel 4 News with an MC, a guy by the name of Marcy Phonics. And Marcy was like, look, this doesn't affect people like you, man. You're, you're just looking at this like, oh, we got caught, it was horrible, we'll try and pay people out, but you're not you're not doing anything to ensure that the individuals that were wronged are actually made whole again. And Korteng said, Well hold there's no evidence that this actually happened. And he was he he was taken to task on that and he had to backtrack during the interview, but that's the attitude that this government is taking towards all of this, you know? And he very, very, very quickly backtracks. Yeah, absolutely. And and 
it's not it's not just the incompetence or the failure to remedy something because you could almost nearly you know try and understand that in government it can be difficult to deal with things like compensation of this on such a grand scale but th- that would be one thing but actually we saw it was the sexual state was pretty patel's um, opposition to people trying to um benefit from the claim I mean, you know we had clients who had to actually bring challenges in the courts you know one case where the home office um, prevented um, the, the, the claimant's children and her husband of a, the Windrush generation client from joining her in the UK you know they separated her family from her for almost three years before basically the high court said that was a colossal interference with her family life. And this is a case where the Home Office, the Home Secretary, uh, defended the case. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't say, OK, fine, we get it. Windrush generation, we're going to right the wrongs, as she kept promising that she would do, and say, right, we, we messed up here. Let's see what we can do. No, she, she defended the policy up until she lost the case. So what we're seeing is an example where she actually doesn't care and it's it's it was all for show. I mean, what's so what's what's going on with it now in terms of the compensation scheme? Are there still people who are just they, they've had no acknowledgement of their applications, or or there are still people awaiting a decision as to whether they're even entitled to compensation? Is it is it just still a complete shit show? Even though she's she's had her entire tenure and as Home Secretary, and she was there for years, like there's there's literally just been no progress. I think a lot of people are in that same position. I think that um, we're seeing that people still waiting or people have been offered amounts that are just shocking. I think there were some changes to the, the conversational rules recently. What sort of amounts? What sort of amounts are we talking? Have you seen any? I'm just curious because I haven't really dealt with this. So people have been offered in, in, in the low amount, you know, low thousands when, when you do the kind of assessments that, that they should be deserving a, a lot more in relation to just losses they suffered. And I think that that's all to all goes down to home secretary and the home offices failures to actually put forward a proper policy low thousands well this is i know i know i meant to, i know i meant to keep it legal but that is that is just ridiculous low thousands family members been unlawfully deported you've been deprived of years with beloved family members with no legal basis and they're offering you low thousands well that's Windrush compensation. One case that I, I dealt with, or, or dealt with in initial stages anyway, because there were a few of these barracks being used, but it was the idea that you could accommodate asylum seekers en masse in military barracks. And before, before I get into the legal challenges, just think about this for a minute. You've left your country of origin. More often than not, I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of these countries are, are war-torn or people have been detained, people have been tortured. Um, they've they've had fear of state actors. They've had had fear of sort of militarized people in their society. You then come to the United Kingdom. Don't forget, in the in the midst of a pandemic, where you know having people on mass in close proximity isn't really advisable. And this genius decides to put hundreds of people in military barracks in communal dorms with absolutely nothing in many cases other than a cloth over their bed to sort of give them some privacy. Right, and in there, I mean, we we had accounts when we were litigating for for Napier Barracks, which was um one 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 of the barracks that was used in Folkestone, 
that there were massive massive covid outbreaks individual the barbed wire on the barbed wire on the walls people felt like they were in prison just and, and in other barracks they could they could hear guns going off because you you had you had armies or whoever it was training in close proximity i mean has anyone even thought of the idea of re-traumatization for example right and, and and the the equality impact assessments that they're meant to do were completely rushed through they, they didn't think of the impact on the individual there was a there was a far right activist coming along on a, on a daily basis right protesting or threatening the individuals outside the barracks um and, and the government knew this and did nothing not not only did they know it but their logic was just so backward they argued that well, we, we didn't want to keep them in hotels because hotels were being identified as hotels that housed asylum seekers and there was a far-right presence outside of those hotels. Well, if you're then going to put hundreds of people in military barracks in the middle of Folkestone, where, which is designated to house hundreds of asylum seekers, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? And these poor asylum seekers are being filmed... I mean, mm. they, they, these are their words, not mine. Being filmed like animals by by far-right activists outside mm. on a daily basis on a daily basis whether it's if, if they're standing sort of at the at the edge of the barracks or if they're even popping out occasionally just to just to go and get basic bits of bread or milk or whatever they're, they're being filmed and they're being attacked by far-right activists i mean this was entirely foreseeable entirely foreseeable and there's part of me that just thinks this was deliberate man this was deliberate they knew they, they knew this was going to happen and Every single thing that they say they they want they want to do because it, it, it ensures that the UK is perceived as hostile and, and they hope that the message relays back to other asylum seekers to the extent that they don't come here. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a deterrence, isn't it? It's a, let's let's dehumanize in a way where, as you say, the message gets through to people who have already lost to an extent a lot of their humanity but let's do it let's get it let's just completely wipe them out so they actually don't make that decision to come to the uk um how can we do it let's literally sit around a table let's go to other countries that may have tried different things and just get the worst possible inhumane system here that we can get away with because that will stop uh, immigration that's 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 their that's the way they do it, At, you know, without any regard to human suffering. And and just for, just for a, a little update as to where those cases are, I, I can't speak for cases that other firms have conduct of, but I know that I know that we have a number of cases that are now uh, either at the the Central London County Court or the King's Bench Division awaiting awaiting decisions on liability and quantum for for things like false imprisonment and and, and discrimination claims and so forth, and there. They're working their way through the system now, so hopefully there'll be some sort of update as to that. Another one, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't believe this. I could not believe this. When I woke up and I read a headline saying, Priti Patel has instructed, what was it, like the Navy or something to, to push people in dinghies back into, into the water. Uh, to the, <laughs> I mean, there were, there were, of course, there were reports of her thinking about using a wave machine. I don't know how far that got. But then she then she instructed people to, to, to I mean, that that was something that you were heavily involved with. But this is the sort of stuff that you just you just read as a headline. You think, nah, come on, come on, that's not going to happen. But I think I think that's her legacy for me. In fact, no, for me, that is her legacy. The stuff I read and I thought, nah, not going to happen. She did it. 
Well, she tried it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I thought when we first read it, first sort of came out in the press, we thought this was yet another kind of example of rhetoric of style over substance. Let's let's keep going, coming out with these crazy policies because our, you know, our anti-immigrant far right base will lap that up. And then we start seeing actually she would have instructed lawyers, so-called lawyers, to and civil servants to draft policy documents that would set out in detail how they would go about and do that. And they presented it and it and partly published publicly some of it. And we realized actually this could happen at any moment. So we, you know, we, we challenged it and we, <clears throat> we, we were instructed by organizations, in this case, the Public Commercial Services Union and Care for Calais. So one was a union whose members are actually Home Office um, Border Force staff who basically said, I can't do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push people back in the middle of the English Channel because I know, thought quite obviously I know, that that's going to lead to loss of life and I'm not going to be responsible. What can I do about it? Uh, and what they did was inst- instruct lawyers to challenge that policy. Um, it was it was terrifying. That is a, that's a massive, massive turning point. Sorry to cut you off, but I remember when you told me that we, for the first time since I've been here, probably the first time since you've been here, we're now representing individuals or a union that represents individuals that work for the Home Office. Because even they have just said, no, come on, come on. This is too much now. This is, this is just getting ridiculous. You can't, you can't make us do this. I mean, what, what was that? Were you, were, you, were you in shock that this, this, is, this is what it's come to now? Because look, typically, you, you remember what it was like when I started. We, we didn't even represent organisations. We, we just represented asylum-seeking individuals. That's what we did. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. When, when they reached out to me to say, we'd like to be involved in any challenge, we want it to be noted that we, you know, we as a union, we as members want to stand up against this. We don't agree with it. We just, we're just trying to do our job as civil servants effectively, as um, of, officials carrying out reasonable, humane immigration policies. So it wasn't, it wasn't politicised. You know, they, they, they're home office, border force officials. It wasn't, um, a political statement it was it was a a humane act while while they are still you know having to feed their families and work as staff members they couldn't just leave their jobs it's not it's not it's not realistic right it's not practical realistic for people just to do that but they thought how else can we take this on and yeah i remember at the time it was it it was it was it was emotional i felt they, you know, they are standing up in this context for the for the first time ever, um, and I thought this is, as you say, this is a turning point. And you know, I, I thought this is, you know, uh, I don't know how, how can I put it. This was um, a re- jo- joining um, a resistance or a rebellion from within, and that's how things actually in- change way more than people from 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 the outside trying to change things 
we were joining forces with people who had had enough from within the rotten system and they had had enough of Priti Patel. That was clear. So what, what happened in the end? I mean, I, I know that you, you didn't reach a substantive hearing, did you? The policy got pulled in the end, didn't it? No. So we, yeah, we we prepped it. It was substantively going to be heard. And then I think I remember, I think it was the weekend or the Friday before the the next week's hearing, they put in a, a, a consent order saying we would, you know, we are, we, we will withdraw the policy. We, we had some assurances about it not returning. They offered to pay our costs, which is always an indication that even though they will never admit that they got it wrong, if they're offering to pay our costs, they know they want to end this because they know we're going to lose. And I think the turning point was some of the disclosure, really, which they, I, I assume Priti Patel wanted to keep quiet. Who knows? But the disclosure basically said that there's no way they would push back turn away, forcibly direct back to France, people who were claiming asylum. And that was basically almost everyone. So the policy was unworkable. Uh, Who knows to to this day whether it was just a huge waste of taxpayers' money just so Priti Patel could could act tough on immigration. But I always say, and you and I have had these conversations before, like, well, we saw some people, people who are on the front line, kind of like, you know, the working class people who were standing up to it. But I always think, what about the senior civil servants and the government legal department officials and the lawyers who draft these policies when they, they're, you know, some of them are oh, smart. I get it. I know that there's advice that they give to their client. And I know that their advice can more often and probably more often than not be overruled. But it doesn't never sits right with me that these sort of policies that are so inhumane and so quite obviously unlawful can just see the light of day. Anyway, maybe I'm maybe I'm just uh, too naive. No, you're not. I mean, look in, immediately after that, dealing with this sort of chronologically, you then have Boris Johnson on the ropes, and in my opinion, anyway, to sort of deflect from that and and change the narrative. We then, we then get notice of the fact that there's been a deal with a country by the name of Rwanda to accept asylum seekers who, who have made what, what the Secretary of State calls, you know, the, 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 the dangerous journey across the channel, the illegal journey, in her words, across the channel. Um, so individuals now, you, you don't even get an opportunity to ventilate your asylum claim in the United Kingdom. That all happens when you're, when you're sent to Rwanda. And that was another one. That I sat there and I read and I thought, nah, no way, man. No way. Come on. I thought I thought at best, post-Brexit, they'd negotiate a, a returns deal with, with a European country, maybe. Uh, so, someone that they used to regularly return asylum seekers to when, when the Dublin Convention was a thing. I thought I thought that was possible. I thought that was plausible. Obviously, that, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of those countries don't really want to negotiate with the UK now, having left the European Union. But I thought that was the, the, the most likely option. And then this, this flight is announced. I mean that that all happened super quick, right? I mean, what was what was the what was the time period between the Rwanda policy being announced and, and then the, the, the first set of removal directions coming around? Because I I came into litigation slight slightly later, but you were obviously sort of there um, from from when it began. It was it was super quick, matter of weeks, matter of weeks. So, I mean, how can how can you think that through in a matter of weeks? Yeah. Think think about absolutely everything you need to take into consideration. Mm-hmm whether it's the conditions within which asylum seekers will be accommodated in Rwanda, whether Rwanda's safe for all asylum seekers, 
whether whether the whether if it's not safe for all asylum seekers, whether there are particular cohorts of asylum seekers that it might not be safe for. There, there, I mean, there are just so many things, and a matter and within a matter of weeks, there's a plane ready to take off from some RAF airbase somewhere in the middle of nowhere to to take a to take a bunch of people to Rwanda. I mean, it was so, what I remember when you told me this. I, honestly, man, I was. I was borderline tears. Wasn't it? You said there was one guy who wasn't too fussed about going to Rwanda because he didn't even know Rwanda wasn't in England. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like he just, he just thought it was somewhere like Liverpool or something. And then he find, and then he finds out he's getting he's getting sent to Rwanda. Yeah, I mean the, gov- the government will say, and they have said that it wasn't sort of randomly just and really quickly presented. We, you know, they had been back and forth. They had prepped it. They had made all these um, assessments, safety assessments, and it's all great. And we've got this wonderful memorandum and agreement between us and Rwanda. But we know, having been in this litigation and having actually properly forensically looked at the evidence that they rely on and the evidence that is objectively available, including UNHCR's intervention, that whatever they said leading up to the announcement in our view, and obviously we'll see what, what the court says, but in our view, that's just not sustainable. They, they just not, they, they don't have enough in any way, in my view, to show that the systems in place in Rwanda are safe for people being removed, are, are in any way viable to properly determine asylum claims of that nature. And Again, it just goes back to Priti Patel's legacy. She thought moving from it was, and it was, and it was almost days. It was days from when they pulled the pushbacks policy to the announcement of Rwanda. I think it was in the space of a week. And I remember at the time thinking, like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna do this? You know, like, obviously we're we're in a an important, I I would say, a, a privileged but important position as um legal aid lawyers in that area to be able to respond to those sort of cases it wasn't just us many other lawyers and firms stood up too but it was literally like how are we going to deal with this within days of cut off the back of something so substantive which was the pushbacks policy and then we start seeing countless number of individuals being detained pursuant to that policy and it all culminated in, as as you know, um, that injunction or that relief that we got from the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and I just think it's just whatever happens in the High Court, because we're we're due a, a judgment on that, right? And that and that I'm sure will carry on. The, just the idea that people are being vulnerable torture survivors and trafficking survivors etc will be rerouted to another country uh, that objectively can be seen to not have full respect of human rights and are have objectively persecuted and punished individuals in relation to their political beliefs in relation to their protest um activities to to think that's okay still still for me sums up pretty patel because she clearly thought it was a good idea and then july i think july july 2022 this is around the time that the first set of removal directions so the flight the first flight was meant to be what 14th of july right 
around that sort of time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Priti Patel then gets called to speak to the Home Affairs Select Committee. Just doesn't turn up. Just doesn't go. I mean, in what in what other line of work, where there's a, a, a committee designed to monitor your performance that schedules a meeting, can you just go, nah, sorry, mate, not not not, not going to turn up, not going to be subject to that to that level of scrutiny, right? Yeah, I mean, I regularly try and fail to turn up to my performance meeting with the managing director, but sadly. I show up. I still do it. Exactly, and then you turn and then you turn up hat in hand, mate. It's not like you don't go, right? That's the that's the reality of it. But this 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 lot seem to get away with it, and I mean, Rwanda Rwanda sort of leads nicely into what we were listening to at the Tory Party conference. But I mean, to be honest, with the pushback stuff and the Rwanda stuff, look, I've got I've got a lot of friends that that voted Conservative at the last election, um, and this stuff is even too much for them. They're like, they, look, we honestly, this this is ridiculous now. This is getting beyond ridiculous. They 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 were they, they were in absolute shock that this is what this country was was proposing to do, and and it seems as though they're going to follow through with it, right? To to the extent now that you have Suella Braverman standing up saying, ah, they are exact words yesterday. Don't get me started on lawyers. You were the AG. You you take. You're more than happy to announce the fact that you were you were a barrister, right? But you're saying don't get me started on lawyers. And then the thing is, man, we sat there with those clients who were due to be on that flight, and I'm talking, you know, victims of trafficking to the sense that they don't even feel comfortable talking to us. They're quite they they're just here. They've had the most ridiculously horrific set of circumstances before they come to the UK. Victims of horrible horrible torture, and they get detained when they come to the United Kingdom. They've had such traumatizing journeys throughout, and if they if they turn on a TV, they they see they see Suella Braverman saying, "I cannot wait. It is my dream to have a front page on a newspaper with a plane taking off to Rwanda." I mean that for that for that to be your dream, think about that for a minute. Just think think about what your motivation has to be because this policy was announced as we want to target the smugglers. Yeah, we want to stop that. It's now morphed into, I want, I'm dreaming of this plane going. Now, is that, are you dreaming of the plane going because you think it's going to have an impact on the smugglers? Or are you dreaming of the plane going because you know who's going to be on that plane? I know, I know what I think the answer is. Yeah, yeah. For her to use those words, I really, I really, I mean, I try, I tried my best not to listen to her speech, but I just thought, you know, probably in our position, we probably have to know what, what she's planning and I knew most of it was again following on from her predecessor, just the just the desperate desire to get into the headlines and look tap, tough on immigration. Some of her policy announcements, or there weren't even policy announcements, were they? Or some of the stuff she said didn't even make sense. Now, I'm going to ban people claiming asylum. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to, if anyone comes here across the channel, I will ban you from claiming. How? Do, what is that? What is that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's just, and, and at, at best, she's restating current policy, which is that your your claims will be inadmissible and you'll be off to Rwanda. So she's just repeating something that's already there. So there's nothing new, is there? And and worse, could a case scenario, she's got this somehow this bizarre view as a, as apparently a so called barrister that she could somehow ban people from claiming asylum, even though statistically it's quite clear that people who come to the UK through that that those means are genuine and genuine 
refugees. So, um, you know, look, Shroy, maybe maybe her dream will come true. Maybe come Christmas, we would have seen our clients removed. There will be a headline in the paper with a with a flight en route to Rwanda. But you know what? That could that could happen, or what could happen is what did happen. Um, and I hope that if that was her, if this is her dream, then you know her nightmare was seeing a flight grounded as it was in June um, when we got the injunction and the flight couldn't or failed to take off as a result of people being taken off the flight. And while we're still here and while we still think there is a strong legal argument to present um, and, yeah, there may be onward appeals, who knows, um, we'll do everything possible to make her dream completely exactly what it is and not reality uh, but it is really sad i think and it's and i and, and and rightly you say there are kind of tories who think this is you know this is too much because it's just it goes against just forget politics it just goes against decent human values and yes people in this country some, a lot of them are anti-immigrant we know that but to to to, to go down this route not just with Rwanda, not just with pushbacks. We've seen it with the Nationality Borders Act, but just the way in which they're planning to deter migrants from coming here through through means that are inhumane is so scary. Um, what's next? You'll get shot. This is this is how we're going to stop people from coming here. We'll shoot them on sight. How about that? That's the next policy. And people will say, well, actually, that's, that's going to deter them, aren't they? That's gonna, I mean, that's basically what pushbacks were, because the evidence was that people would die and drown. So what's the difference? You know, that's that's where we're going. We're going down that really scary phase of draconian policies that I just don't even know how we can even challenge. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, speaking of dreams and nightmares, you know, it would have been a dream for a lot of us to know that Priti Patel would no longer be Home Secretary, but the nightmare is... What we had to listen to at the Tory party conference, the stuff that was coming out of the mouth of the new Home Secretary, the idea that she wants to take us out of the European Convention. Saw Liz Truss today talking about how she's going to ensure that our domestic courts can can override anything that the European Court on Human Rights has to say. So our whistle-stop tour of Priti Patel's legacy has actually culminated in um, us worrying about what's to come. I mean, that's, I guess, like with any like with any legacy it lays the groundwork doesn't it it lays the groundwork for what's next yeah and a lot of what's next i think we will end up covering in this season of the podcast for for an indication as to what we're planning on covering in season two go back and listen to the last episode of season one we give we give you a bit of a sort of whistle stop tour of of all of the of all of the episodes that we plan on bringing you this season if you haven't listened to season one please do go back and revisit some of those episodes because not only was it a pleasure for us to record and a privilege for us to record but I genuinely think that you'll enjoy listening to most, if not all, of those episodes. We'll make an effort to ensure that this season is as regular as the last. The next episode, if all goes well, we'll be dropping in a fortnight. T, anything to add before we sign out and get back to work? Yeah, just um, I'm excited for season two. I think we've got some really good ideas. We've got some really good plans for interesting guests. I I repeat what we said uh, in, in, in last season, that we've had some really good feedback in relation to the last episode. Uh, season and I hope that continues people got ideas of what we should do and what we should cover 
get in contact with us because um, that would be nice um, for us to sort of cover those areas. And um, yeah, we look forward to being back. Yeah.